You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported. Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good evening, I'm Abe Shapiro. And I'm Noelle Herhusky-Schneider. This is the WFHB Local News for Wednesday, November 16th, 2022. Later in the program, I continue my special report, Civil or Not, the court case of Tulewski versus Marion, and the debate over a private right to sue. More in today's feature report. Also coming up in the next half hour, Pants on Fire on Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment on WFHB. More following today's feature. But first, your local headlines. On November 7th at the Bloomington Board of Public Works meeting, the board approved two requests from Gillette General Contractors for street and sidewalk closures from November 8th to April 15th of 2023. Engineering field specialist Paul Kerberg delineated which streets and sidewalks would be affected by the closures. I'm Gillette General Contractors is currently building a new mixed-use development along South Grant Street, just north of East 3rd Street. Um, this is on both the east and west sides of Grant Street. Um, and now that various other city projects have been completed, um, they're requesting a full street closure with, as well as adjacent sidewalks along South Grant Street. Um, this is just north of 3rd to the Midblock Alley. Um, during these closures, they will uh, be doing a new water main, water service to both buildings, stormwater infrastructure, um, new curbs and sidewalks, and also resurfacing Grant Street. Um, the closures are requested from November 8th through April 15th of 2023. And in the future, they will have sidewalk closures along East 3rd Street forthcoming. Um, they've sent notifications to the adjacent properties to let them know about the closure. The board approved both requests unanimously. Later, Engineering Project Manager Sarah Gomez asked the board to approve a contract with Rivertown Construction LLC for the Henderson Street Neighborhood Greenway Project. This project will construct sidewalk, alley apron, uh, curb ramps, pavement markings, and signs and on the west side of Henderson Street between 2nd and Smith Avenue. This project is listed as a high-priority bicycle network connection in the city's transportation plan and the project provides a connection for the East-West Smith-Hunter Neighborhood Greenway. This is currently not feasible for bicyclists for the connection when traveling eastbound due to the one-way configuration of Henderson. Uh, The project will be funded by ARPA, and construction will be in 2023. Uh, The northbound traffic lane of Henderson Street from 2nd to Smith Avenue will be closed and a detour route will be in place on Lincoln to 3rd Street. The sidewalk on the east side of Henderson will remain open for the duration of construction. The project will run for 45 days and it has a completion date of August 1st, 2023. Gomez said that out of the four bids submitted, Rivertown Construction submitted the lowest and most responsive bid. Journalist Dave Askins asked if the project would create a protected bike lane. Gomez explained that it would not be a protected bike lane, 
but it would still be erased bike lane with other measures to ensure the biker's safety. Um, I'm happy to try to answer the question uh, as much as I can. So this will not be a protected bike lane in the sense of what was just installed on uh, 7th Street, um, but it will be protected as in um, there will be uh, a widened sidewalk uh, for bicyclists to use, um, and there will be also a crossing to um, on Henderson uh, for, for a safer crossing to... Um, Hunter, and then um, there'll be ramps as well at Hunter to to cross over. Um, so it'll be basically be kind of a raised bike lane per se, um, and then it meets back down with the street just south of Hunter, um, where there'll just be paint markings um, as the protected uh, portion of the bike lane that's in the street. Um, and that's so that the bicyclists can go north and south on Henderson again, So because, you know, Henderson is a one-way northbound at that point. The board agreed to approve the contract unanimously. The next Bloomington Board of Public Works meeting has been scheduled for November 22nd. Up next, we have some recent prison-related news and announcements from the producers of KiteLine, our public affairs program devoted to prison issues in the Midwest and beyond. KiteLine airs at 5.30 p.m. each Friday on WFHB. The program is available online at wfhb.org or wherever you listen to your podcasts. The notorious Georgia State Prison and its inmates had a host of problems before the facility shuttered for good. But just down the road in Glenville, Georgia, Smith State Prison has continued to operate with considerably less scrutiny, despite its overwhelmingly obvious violence and its out-of-control operations. Georgia State Prison in Reedsville closed for general operations in early 2022, though it is routinely still used as a transfer hub for inmates coming and going from other jurisdictions. As the 100-year-old prison, once home to death row and the electric chair, was shuttered, the Georgia Department of Corrections announced that it was contemplating building an even larger maximum security site in Tattnall County, to the tune of several hundred million dollars, which would return the number of prisons in the small rural county to three. Even before the closing of Georgia State Prison, Smith State Prison in Glenville dominated the court dockets in Tattnall County Superior Court, Of the inmate prison cases that resulted in additional criminal charges in Tattnall County from Georgia State Prison, Rogers State Prison and Smith State Prison over the last three years, a whopping 70.3% of them originated from Smith State Prison. Eight people have died from a fire in a prison in Iran. Six more continue in serious but stable condition. The Iranian state news agency reported a total of 65 injured, while sources inside the prison told the BBC that the number was higher. The fire took place at Avon Prison in Tehran on Saturday, October 15th, following what officials reported as an escape attempt that sparked fighting among people incarcerated there. Avon Prison, which holds many people who are considered political prisoners, has been the object of repeated critique by NGOs and foreign government for human rights abuses. 
Reports of the source of the fire differ widely. In contrast to the official explanation of a prison break in fighting, journalists claimed prison authorities set the blaze on purpose. They noted that a high-profile political prisoner, a son of Iran's former president, had been sent home just before the fire. The official account of the fire also made no reference to the broader political situation in Iran, still symbolically ablaze with a fifth week of protests over the death of Masa Amini, a 22-year-old arrested in Kurdistan province for failing to adhere to state religious dress code requirements. Amini's death in police custody sparked protest across Iran, particularly among women and girls. Protesters marched, chanted, burned hijabs, and cut their hair, inspiring solidarity protests throughout the world. Hundreds of arrested protesters have been sent to Avon prison. Prison officials claim there is no relationship between the protests. The protesters detained in Avon, other political prisoners, and the fire. Governor Greg Abbott said on Thursday that he and other state leaders are pulling $359.6 million out of the state prison system's budget to fund his Operation Lone Star border security operation through the next 10 months. So far, more than $4 billion have been spent to keep thousands of Department of Public Safety troopers and Texas National Guard members stationed along the Texas-Mexico border and other areas of the state. This latest infusion was among $874.6 million in emergency budget transfers authorized by Abbott at the request of the Texas Legislative Budget Board. The impact of this shift in funding on the chaotic Texas prison system is not immediately clear. A man who spent more than 38 years behind bars for a 1983 murder and two attempted murders has been released from a California prison after long untested DNA evidence pointed to a different person, the Los Angeles County District Attorney said. The conviction and life sentence of Morris Hastings, 69, were vacated during an October 20th court hearing at the request of prosecutors and his lawyers from the Los Angeles Innocence Project at California State University. I prayed for many years that this day would come, Hastings said at a news conference on Friday. I am not pointing fingers. I am not standing up here a bitter man, but I just want to enjoy my life now while I have it. The district attorney, George Gascon, said in a statement, What has happened to Mr. Hastings is a terrible injustice. The justice system is not perfect, and when we learn of new evidence which causes us to lose confidence in a conviction, it is our obligation to act swiftly. In today's Disabulletin, WFHB correspondent Abe Shapiro continues his ongoing report, Civil or Not, the court case of Tulefsky v. Marion, and the debate over a private right to sue. We turn to Abe Shapiro for more. Good evening, I'm Abe Shapiro, and this is Disabulletin. This week, we continue our recap of last Tuesday's arguments in the Supreme Court case to Levski v. Marion County Health and Hospital Corporation. 
also known as Marion HHC. The case presents the question of whether private individuals, such as the late Georgie Tulevsky, can sue publicly owned nursing homes which receive federal funds. If such nursing homes deprive citizens of their civil rights under the Federal Nursing Home Reform Act, also known as FINRA. Tulevsky's family alleges their relative was medicated and transferred to several different nursing homes against their wishes and in violation of FINRA. The family says their lawsuit is justified under Section 1983 of the 1871 Civil Rights Act, which allows private citizens to sue government representatives should their civil rights be violated. On the opposite side, Marion HHC, which operates the original nursing home Tulevsky resided at, argues it transferred Tulevsky, who had dementia, because he was acting out in violent and sexual ways towards staff and fellow residents. Previously, the Disabilitan analyzed the arguments of Marion HHC's attorney, Lawrence Robbins, who asserted Tulevsky has no grounds to sue, unless the Marion HHC was informed in advance that they would be subject to lawsuits by private individuals should they accept federal funds. Robbins went on to state that the remedies provided by Marion HHC were sufficient and that Tulevsky received an appropriate remedy for his situation, thereby eliminating the justification to file a 1983 lawsuit or pursue any further legal action. As I recall, there are provisions that require, uh, that, that give, for example, the state's um, discretion as to whether they're going to exercise any of their remedies, uh, including because, for example, they're, they're managing the uh, facility, they're looking it over, and they, they don't want to uh, terminate a, a funding or they want to take some more lesser step. I would contend that private litigation is, in fact, antithetical to the discretion that states and the secretary <laughs> have. And what's striking about this case, of course, is that Mr. Tolevsky availed himself of all of those provisions, got the relief he wanted, and then came back to court for money. Um, so it, this is a case where the, where the actual regulations did a terrific job. But again, let me just finish why I quarrel with Your Honor's premise. To me, if I, when, as I read the body of law that was started with sea clamors and goes through uh, uh, Robinson and then up to uh, City of Palo Verdes, what the court has said is we usually begin with the assumption that the provision of one remedy excludes the other. Later in the proceedings, Andrew Tut, the attorney for Tulevsky, provided a rebuttal in which he stated that the remedies granted to Tulevsky were both insufficient and never followed up on by Marion HHC. These are minimal state-level administrative remedies. They, they, ta they are the equivalent of saying that the nursing home should make sure that if your rights are violated, it at least has some kind of process for you telling on the person who is abusing you. The, the, the nursing home is required to then inform the state regulator, and then maybe the state regulator will take action. In this very case, uh, HHC continues to say that, that we got all the relief that we were seeking. We got none of the relief that we were seeking. We didn't even, we didn't even use any kind of grievance process. A private neurologist had to be hired to taper the drugs. There was, no, there was sort of no remedy from the nursing home for the actual chemical restraints that were applied to Mr. Tulevsky. What about the point that the secretary can come in then, you know, in circumstances where there's been deprivations? Your Honor, there may be a process for getting to the Health and Human Services Secretary to actually get enforcement 
uh, for rights violations by nursing homes. If there was, I promise you this family would have preser- uh, pursued it. But as far as I know, it was there was no process available. So, I mean, this family was crying out for help and using every possible lever at their disposal. Section 1983 was the last resort. They went to seven medical malpractice attorneys and were turned away because the claim wasn't worth enough money in Indiana. It, this, is, this is a lifesaver for people who cannot actually make effective use of the administrative scheme. And that is how 1983 functions. So empirically, these suits are brought actually mostly as injunctive actions to remedy systemic egregious policies of actually violating the federal rights in FINRA. So those are the kinds of suits that, as we understand it, are being brought. Can I ask you then? Go ahead. I was just going to say, uh, your friend uh, uh, says that the policies were filed, uh, uh, were followed, the alternative remedies, and that Mr. Talevsky no longer had to take the medication and uh, was entitled to return to the facility if he wished to do so. Your Honor, with respect to the first question, as uh, as pleaded in the complaint, he didn't didn't get that with respect to the chemical restraints. Instead, a private neurologist was hired and uh, worked with the nursing home to have the strain, uh, the drugs removed. With respect to the transfer, they won the administrative proceeding, and the nursing home still refused his readmission. And they pleaded with the state regulator, and perhaps AJC can address this on rebuttal, but they were told, you need to go to a state court and sue for a state injunction to force the nursing home to actually take action on the administrative order from the ALJ that you just won. Um, So that that was how this actually played out in practice. And of course, in the Anderson case in the Ninth Circuit, this was so this was considered to be such a systematic problem in the state of California that a suit was actually brought against the state of California to order the state of California to actually force the ALJ orders to be presumptively enforceable because nursing homes would be told under the state level administrative process that they needed to take someone back and then they wouldn't. Um, and a, it is very difficult to think of this as a comprehensive remedial scheme when the remedy for being involuntarily evicted from your home by a nursing home is to go back to that place where you fear retaliation potentially, where um, if, if you were involuntarily transferred in, for instance, the context of this case because you were being abused, um, you don't want to go back. So the only available remedy isn't even the remedy that you would want. We've heard the arguments today from both Andrew Tutt of the Tulevsky camp and Lawrence Robbins of the Marion camp. Tomorrow, we'll be hearing from a neutral party, the Solicitor General of the United States, who will discuss a little bit more about where each side is right and where each side is wrong. Until then, I'm Abe Shapiro. Live and learn. Up next, Pants on Fire on Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment on WFHB. We turn to host and producer Richard Fish for more.
Welcome to Better Beware. Here's your consumer watchdog from WFHB Community Radio with the latest information and helpful hints designed to keep your head out of the clouds, your feet on the ground, and your money in your pocket. Liar, liar, pants on fire. That's what con artists are, and that's what they do when they try to steal your money. They tell lies. Whether it's a small-time dip pretending to bump into you so he can pick your pocket, or a Bernie Madoff stealing $19 billion in a gigantic Ponzi scheme, there's a lie in it somewhere. Here are some of the falsehoods flying around this very minute. Student loan forgiveness is big news these days, even if the government's program is still being fought in the courts. That's what makes fakers like Liz credible. She's the voice on a robocall that the news director of an Indianapolis radio station got. She said she was from something called Student Advisor and claimed he was pre-qualified for the updated forgiveness program and said it was urgent that he call back because his eligibility would expire soon. Of course, the callback number connected with some guy who wanted to collect a fee for enrollment in the program. But that's a scam. And the idea that you have to pay money to qualify for student loan forgiveness is an outright lie. Then there's a text scam going around. I've gotten this one myself. It appears to come from a company who provides your phone service, that's what I got, or your electricity or other utility. It just says something like, Free message! Your bill is paid for March, or whatever the month is. Thanks! Here's a little gift for you. And there's a web link to click or tap. There are three lies in this one. It doesn't come from the company it pretends to be. Your bill is not paid. And the gift will actually be some nasty malware, like ransomware, that locks up your computer. Don't click that link. Delete the message, and if you can, block the sender. Do you use an online service called WhatsApp? That's been deluged with scams lately. A common one is a text message that appears to come from someone you know or someone in your family. But, of course, that's a lie. It simply says, I've got a new phone number. Here it is. Please use this one and delete the old one. Sometimes there's another lie. The faker claims their phone was lost or broken. If you respond, the impersonator wants you to make some payments for them, and you can guess who actually gets the money. Just because these scams have turned up on WhatsApp doesn't mean they won't show up on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, or any other social media. In any case, check to see what's true before you believe a lie. If you get a message saying, I've got a new number, check the old one or get in touch another way before you do anything else. If a scammer's pants are on fire, let them burn. I'm Richard Fish for WFHB News and Public Affairs. Better Beware comes to you from WFHB Bloomington, Indiana. Find all our episodes at wfhb.org. If you can help put the kibosh on a con, email beware at wfhb.org. Remember, swindlers never give a sucker an even break.
Support for WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems, encouraging independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Noel Herhusky Schneider in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by me, Abe Shapiro. Better Beware is produced by Richard Fish. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB, I'm Noel Herhusky Schneider. And I'm Abe Shapiro. Live and learn. And thank you for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at WFHB.org. The WFHB Local News is also available as a podcast. Just search our call letters, WFHB, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe to never miss another local news program. Stay tuned now for cool solutions, climate action from the bottom up. Coming next, only on WFHB Community Radio. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB local news volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB local news archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB local news. We are local, longer, 